Amen. When you think of Christmas, you think of generosity. The two go together like bologna and white bread. Actually, no, that's a terrible analogy. That was not in my notes. Bologna is disgusting, for the record. It's just a flat hot dog. That's really what bologna is, right? Yeah, except you don't get to cook it. It's just cold and nasty. Does anyone actually like bologna? This has nothing to do with the sermon. You guys really like, do you like Miracle Whip too? What? Those two things go together. Like people that like bologna like Miracle Whip. I don't know what it is. Yeah. Oh, okay. All right. Well, I know. <clears throat> I know something about you guys now. That was a total distraction. Yeah, I like mayonnaise. Miracle Whip is an imposter of mayonnaise. Miracle Whip is someone that decided I'm going to add sugar to mayonnaise and ruined it somehow. I don't even know what it is. Okay. <laughs> Maybe I'll grow up <laughs> someday. Christmas and generosity go together. Uh, it's impossible not to think about generosity at the time of year that we're in, right? Everything from uh, as we're walking into Walmart and there's that person ringing the bell, um, from the cards or the letters that we get in the mail, people asking maybe for, for generos- generous gifts or donors or missionaries looking for funding, uh, or that, that constant nagging feeling like, man, I got to get my shopping done because Christmas is the time where we give gifts to one another. Uh, I don't need to make that point. It's very simple. Christmas and generosity go together. But here's a question that we're going to run after. Which came first, the chicken or the egg? Okay, did, did commercialism invent generosity so that they could make a lot of money? Or did commercialism commandeer generosity? And in fact, generosity was something built in intrinsically into Christmas. Okay, something to think about. Christmas sort of annually reminds us every year of this deep and inner desire to be generous. Christmas for me, it, it reminds me, oh yeah, this is human thing, this human thing that we all sort of know is good. We don't need to explain that, that generosity is a good human function. And Christmas reminds us of that. But Christmas also reminds us of the fact that oftentimes, even though we try, we're not as generous as we know we should be or generous as we know we would like to be. Gener- uh, gen- you know, December 25th uh, brings with it all of these good, warm, fuzzy feelings of love and com- care and, and, and community and generosity. But at the end of the day, t- December 26th still comes. And when it comes, the world is still broken. And people are still selfish. And families are still twisted and dysfunctional, Right? So even though we put on this sort of, once a month, we put on our happy sweaters and we put on our happy faces and we pretend like we're this generous species. At the, at the very core, the very fundamental level of humanity, we're not. We're intrinsically selfish, aren't we? We're deeply entrenched in thinking about ourselves, spending money on ourselves, doing things for ourselves. So Christmas reminds us of what we should be. It also reminds us of what we can't be. The reality is, even though, by the way, humans are capable on a human level of producing quite a bit of generosity. I mean, when my, my car runs out of gas, it's amazing. People still jump out of their car. It, it still baffles me when it happens. They still jump out of their car to come help push me. I run out of gas a lot, by the way. It's kind of this thing that I do. I like to push it, like to see how far I, I think I can go, like a couple more miles. But people are still generous. People still give. People still have this kind of um, this like residual feeling of generosity in them. But at the end of the day, if you take the report card of human of the human generosity, it, it, it doesn't really look well. Humanity as a whole, we have 
something wrong with our generosity. And the reason is actually very simple. The reason is that our root system, the root system of our generosity, um, is blocked from its source by the bedrock of a fallen and broken world. The roots of our generosity can't get to its source. Humans cannot produce generosity, true generosity, any more than a shadow can produce a human. What is a shadow? A shadow is proof that a human is there, but a shadow doesn't produce a human. Well, human generosity is a shadow. It's a ripple. It's a wave. It's it's an echo. It's a remnant of something that once was, the substance of what was, because We were created by a generous God. We were created to be generous people, but we live in a fallen world. And so there's this bedrock that keeps our root system of generosity from getting into its source, getting into its origin. It's a problem. And sin, this this sin that, that, that lives and permeates our world, finds its way into every crevice of our generosity, so much of the generosity that we do as humans, we think maybe it's, it's, it's true generosity, but it's very core. When we get underneath it, when we put it under the microscope, we realize that sin has actually taken over it. And it has uh, amalgamated into it, enmeshed into it, wrong motives. What I want to do this morning with you is I want to, first of all, make the case that human-level generosity, human-sourced generosity is intrinsically missing the mark. And then I want to show you what true generosity looks like, where it comes from, and how we can walk in it. And then we're going to study the whole book of Philemon. Are you with me? <laughs> okay. Philemon's really short, by the way, in case you're freaking out. Um, and then we're going to have some conversation. It's going to be good. I want to start by making the point that sin has invaded our human-level generosity. And what I mean by that is the generosity that we as humans can produce out of our own sort of our own reservoir, out of our own strength. There's three ways that sin, there's probably more than this, but there's at least three ways that sin finds its way or invades human generosity. You might write them down. Three ways in which where you, you might think you're being generous, but if you were to, again, put it under a microscope and, and look at it, you would see that sin has actually found its way into even what would seem like a good thing, like human generosity. Let me show you how. The first way that sin invades our human generosity is through when it, or when it is done for self-furtherance. A lot of the generosity that I produce out of my own reservoir, out of my own self, is actually done for self-furtherance. There's a business term, an acronym, ROI, have you heard of this? Uh, it refers to return on investment. So when you're a businessman or a businesswoman, you look at an investment or you look at a a possible spending endeavor and you say, well, what is the ROI? What's the return on investment? What's going to come back? Now, what we do oftentimes in our subconscious, I'm not saying you, you think this out loud, but in your subconscious, oftentimes we think, I would love to give something to someone. I'd love to be generous. What's the ROI? What am I going to get back for it? What am I going to get back for it? And much of the generosity that we produce on a human level is simply an ROI. I'm going to invest, I'm going to give somebody a gift because I know it's going to get me a return. Well, what kind of returns are we looking for? Usually, it's a return of affection. I'm going to give my friend a gift because then I will endear myself to him or her. They will care for me more. They'll they'll love me more. So ultimately, although it feels like generosity, it's really, in, in many ways, it's a selfish gift. I had friends like this growing up that um, they, they just weren't popular. Kids didn't like them. And, and they thought, well, maybe if I give enough stuff to them, they'll like me. 
right? And so they would just give things away to the point where it was almost uncomfortable. They're like, take this, take this, take this. Why are you giving all this? And it was because at the root of it, because they wanted affection. And sometimes our giving, if you strip it down, if you peel it back underneath it, sometimes our giving just simply, I just want people to like me. I just want people to love me. The other way that we look for returns in, in our self-furtherance is, is relational equity. Maybe if I give to this person, they will trust me more. I used to work for somebody like that. And, and, the, and everything on their, their, their entirety of their life proved to me that they really didn't care about me, but yet they would spend money to get me something to try to make up for that deficit. So the generosity in really many ways was, was more about getting me to trust them. Another return we look for is public piety, right? I'm going to give because it makes me look generous. This is something Jesus spoke to a lot in the New Testament, particularly with the Pharisees, because they would make a large show of their giving. Uh, they, they would make it very obvious and very public that they, they were giving, and Jesus spoke out against that. And what did he say? He said, well, if you give in public, then you've already gotten your reward. Your reward is that men think much of you. There you go. I hope that was worth it. So underneath our generosity, oftentimes we have uh, a desire for self-furtherance. But there's another thing, another way our sin invades our generosity, and that's through self-assurance. Self-assurance. Oftentimes our giving doesn't necessarily just mean I want someone to like me. It actually has to do with relieving our own inner guilty conscience. Did you know that you have a courtroom inside of your head at all times? You may not be aware that it's there. But you have a constant courtroom, and in within that courtroom, you have uh, someone that is pleading a case or making a case against you, whether or not you're a good person. And then you have your inner defense attorney, right? And that inner defense attorney is always looking for material to prove the case that you're actually not a bad person. So let me give you a scenario. You're driving to Fred Meyer, and there's that person on the corner. They're there always. They're always there, and they're, they're asking for money. Okay, and, and you're going past and you're thinking, am I a bad person if I don't give this person money? What's happening in that moment? Your inner defense attorney and your inner antagonist, your inner, uh, your, your inner prosecutor is going back and forth. And you think, well, I don't really want to give that guy money. I think he's probably going to go buy drugs with it. He's probably got more money than I do. This guy probably makes 500 bucks a day sitting on this corner. That's what you're thinking. You don't really want to give, but you think, but if I don't give, what if that means I'm a bad person? So what do you do? You buy a guilty conscience with 50 cents. Now, is that generosity? I would say no. It's not really generosity. You want to drive away and not feel like a bad person. You're walking into Walmart, and there's the little bell, and there's the little red bucket, and you think, I don't really want to put any money in the red bucket, but if I don't put money in the red bucket, maybe that means I'm a bad person. I'm going to put money in the red bucket. We have to be careful. This is contractual generosity. This is generosity where it looks like, I'm going to give some so I can keep the rest. This is the problem with the tithe, the concept of the tithe, the, the idea that if I give this percentage, then God will keep his hands off the rest. And really what we're doing is we're, we're not giving generously. We're saying, God, I'm going to give you 10% so I can keep 90. That's not generosity, right? It's about purchasing. It's about buying uh, either, either a, a public image or my own, satiating my own guilt. The third way sin can invade our generosity is through self-service. Self-serving. This one's a little more tricky, there's a universal principle about giving. You guys have probably experienced it. And when I, be, when I say universal, I mean it's true of everyone. And that is that if you give, there's pleasure in that, isn't there? Even non-Christians, even people that, that don't believe in the Bible, like even your kids, like right, they, they give something, like, hey, that feels good. It feels good to give. 
So for some people, their motive in generosity is not necessarily to win favor. It's not necessarily to win affection. It's not necessarily to win public piety. Their objective, their desire is to feel good. Okay. Now you're saying, well, what's wrong with that? Why is it bad or wrong to give in order to feel good? Well, let me think that out about it. Let's, let's think that out a little bit. First of all, this could be referred to as atheistic giving. Because at the center, at the core, the purpose of why you're giving is what? Self. Self. You're giving because it makes you feel good. Now, at first, that might seem like an okay and a harmless reality. But what ends up happening is atheistic generosity ultimately ends up enslaving yourself and then the person you're giving to. The reason is because that joy that you get from giving, it will never quite be enough. There are people that have become uh, giants of industry, made millions of dollars, and they realized it was empty. So they exchange the, the, the pipe dream of chasing more and more and more for a different pipe dream of philanthropy. And then they go in to start selling everything they have and giving all this stuff to the poor, and, and they think that's going to make them happy. But the funny thing is it still doesn't make them happy. Why? Because at a human level, on a creative level, giving for creation itself is not satisfying. And here's how it enslaves other people. It enslaves other people because when you make your joy hinge on their joy, you crush them with expectations. This is what parents often do for our kids. Probably one of the closest things to true generosity you can have is a parent with a child. Okay, I love my kids. I want to give to my kids, not just because I want to return but because I love them. But the problem is if I give for the sake of my kids, I will crush them with expectation because now my joy is connected to their joy. And if they're not happy, then I'm not happy. Now you're saying, Sam, that seems a little nitpicky, right? It seems a little nitpicky. So, so you're saying if I give generously for the sake of someone else, that that's actually unhealthy? Well, over time, yes, it is. And here's why. Because whatever starts to serve you if you make it a God thing, eventually you'll serve it. Okay? Our idols always start out promising to serve us. But eventually, if we look to them rather than God, we will serve them. Okay? So there's this, this feeling of generosity. This feels good, but if you're giving for anything short of God himself, ultimately it will enslave you. Now, here's, here's what I want to shift. The question becomes, if our generosity at, at every human level is ultimately um, agentized or... or um, taken over by sin, how do we have true generosity? What does it look like to have true generosity? I want to give you four things to think about. Uh, I want to give you four things that you need to realize before you can start walking in true, what I want to call gospel-sourced generosity. Gospel-sourced generosity. We're going to need four things. I'm going to give them all to you up front, and then we'll go back through them one by one. First, you're going to need a true example. Second, you're going to need a true motive. Third, you're going to need a true perspective. And four, you're going to need a true source. These are the four things that we are going to need in order to achieve true generosity. Now, let me explain what I mean by true generosity in this first point. We need a true example. Because the reality is we actually don't know what true generosity is. Because we've only ever lived in a world that's been void of it. We've experienced shadows of generosity. We've, expo we've experienced ripples of generosity, echoes of generosity, but we've never experienced true generosity because we live in a fallen, broken creature world. True generosity needs to be imported. What is true generosity? What is true generosity? There's only ever been one time that we've seen true generosity in humanity, and you know what it was? We celebrated on Christmas. 
We celebrate it on the Christmas. It was the moment that God, who did not need anything. Listen to me. This is important, okay? God, who did not need anything, gave everything. That's true generosity. See, God in no way was giving simply so that he could receive something in return. God was giving out of the abundance of his own generosity for his own sake, for his own glory. Now, 1 John lays this out. The apostle in 1 John 3, 16, he says, this is how we know what love is. Or you could say, this is how we know what generosity is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and our sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother and sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? John's case here is that we know what love is. We know what generosity is because heaven has been generous and has translated true generosity through the illustration of God spending the riches of heaven, which is Jesus, on his bride. You all know the verse, John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he what? Gave. For God so loved the world that he was generous with giving his own son so that whoever could believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. The generosity of heaven models for us what true generosity is. God, who is love, lavishly and generously spent the riches of heaven on a blasphemous world who could never repay such a gift with all of eternity worth of works, purely out of his own eternal generosity, That is the standard of true generosity. Romans 5, 6 is, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And then Paul adds this note. He says, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps a good person, one would even dare to die. But God shows his love or his generosity for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He purchased us when we were valuable or valueless. He purchased us when we could not in any way add value to him. This is true generosity. God had nothing to gain other than to share his own satisfying and glorious attributes with creation forever. This is the most pure example. Now, this is why, to answer my question earlier, this is why Christmas and generosity are so connected. Because Christmas is the moment where God revealed what true generosity looks like and giving his son to the world, giving his son to us. So we need a true example. Now, secondly, we need a true motive. We need a true motive. Believe it or not, giving for the sake of people themselves is actually not an adequate motive. We need a better motive. We need a higher source than just simply the feeling of joy or the return on relational equity or the, the, the feeling of mutual uh, affection. We need something higher to truly be generous. Okay, we just got this puppy. Uh, her name is Gemma. She's super cute. She's a Bernie Doodle dog, so she's just like this big fluffy sheepdog. And she loves to eat, cho- eat uh, shoes. She loves to eat her shoes. It's a problem. <laughs> Okay. She loves to eat our shoes. She just Every time she gets a second, she goes over and gets a shoe and bring it back. And we have to release it from the grip of her puppy teeth. Okay, now how do we get her to release the grip of the shoe? We give her a superior treasure, right? You want a treat? 
You want a bone? You want something else, something better than the shoe? Which for her, I mean, that's a, that's a tough one because she loves her shoe. Okay. When you look up generosity in the dictionary and you click thesaurus, you will find one of the synonyms of generosity is open-handedness. Open-handedness. Here is our natural state as humans. We cling. We hold on. We're stingy by nature, right? What makes you open your hand? Reaching for something more valuable. The same thing that allows my dog to let go of the shoe is the same thing that lets us let go of our, our possessions, our time, our life. We find a superior treasure. Now, the, this is something that Jesus was trying to, to, uh, to illuminate and illustrate to us throughout the scriptures, that the key to true generosity is finding true treasure. Uh, Jesus gave this amazing parable, you're familiar with it, of, of a man who went into the field. This is a poor man. It was a, a, a blue-collar man, someone that was paid to work someone else's field. He had a few possessions, um, and he goes into this field, and as he's plowing someone else's field, his plow hits this box. He gets down, digs out the box, and he finds this treasure, this superior treasure, this treasure that's more valuable than anything he owns. And he's so overwhelmed with joy over this treasure that he goes and he sells everything he has, to buy the field. What's he doing in that moment? He's opening his hand because he's reaching for a superior treasure. Five minutes before he would have found that treasure, he never would have sold his earthly possessions. Jesus is saying this is what the kingdom of heaven is like. In other words, when you discover the value, the treasure of the kingdom of heaven, your grip opens. This is exactly the antithesis of what happened when Jesus encountered the rich young ruler, remember? He comes across this man who has worked hard to become something in life. And this man comes to Jesus and says, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, have you, have you done the rules? Have you followed the rules? He says, yes, I followed the rules. Done this and this. And Jesus uh, says, one thing that you lack, go and sell everything that you have and give it to the poor. Now, the question is, is Jesus saying that in order to go to heaven, you have to give everything away? Or, listen, is Jesus saying once you discover the treasure of heaven, you can't help but give everything away? You see the difference? The difference is that Jesus was the eternal treasure standing right in front of the rich young ruler, and he didn't see him that way. And so he walked away clenching his fist. The key to generosity is that we need a better motive. We need something higher to give to. If you give for the sake of the people themselves, you will crush those people and you will enslave yourself. Sounds kind of funny to say, doesn't it? But think about it. Christian generosity says, I will give everything because God, or pardon me, I will give anything because God is my everything. I can give anything because God is my everything. It's very different. Augustine said, or Augustine, depending on how you want to say it. He said, God is always trying to give good things to us, but our hands are too full to receive them. We're tight-fisted. We're clenched. We, 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 we hold on to what we think is so valuable because we make these, these things in our life eternal. We think they're going to satisfy us, and they simply don't. And the, the key to opening our hand is finding the superior treasure of Christ. Number three, the third thing we need is a true perspective. So we need a true example. We need a true motive we need a true perspective, number three. And that perspective is simply this, guys. It is that the truth of the matter is that everything that we own is the Lord's. <laughs> Isn't that great? You're, you're, you're deceiving yourself if you think your stuff is your stuff. 
And can I just say this? It's way easier to spend someone else's stuff <laughs> to share, isn't it? Hey, can I borrow this? Sure, it's not mine. Yeah, go for it. I mean, it's way easier to spend someone else's money than it is to spend your own. The reality is, is that everything that we own is actually the Lord's, and so therefore we can be generous. And here's the beautiful part. We are bond servants. We are stewards. We are uh, butlers, if you will. In my house, for some reason, we've made a, my kids made it a pejorative term to call someone a butler. <laughs> They're like, you're a butler. Like, no. Uh, and I'm trying to tell them, I'm like, hey, butler, that's not a bad job, you know? Uh, butler, the manager of the, of the goods, right? So we are bond servants. We are uh, managers. We are stewards of God's riches, Everything God has given you is actually his, and the good news is, is that you're, you're stewarding someone's resources that is incredibly generous, and we get the gift of giving his stuff out, giving his time out, giving his energy out, giving his everything out. Reminds me of that parable Jesus gave about the, the rich man who made a feast, and he made this, this just lavish feast, and then he sends his servants out to go invite the townspeople or whoever they were, the lords of the land, and they all said, no, we're too busy. We've got other things going. So what does the, the rich master do? He reallocates his generosity. He says, go find anybody that'll come, and we're going to lavish them with generosity. This is the God that we serve. He is so generous, and everything we own is his. And he is asking us to become the agency, listen, the agency of his generosity. God wants to bless people. He has the resources to do it. And you are very likely the hands or the feet of that resource. You are very likely the way that God wants to do that. You ever pray for someone that God would deliver them and as you're praying or that God would uh, provide for them and as you're praying, you're thinking, I'm that thing. <laughs> I pray you would just help my brother. Oh my goodness, I'm, I'm actually gonna be the answer to that prayer. That's a cool thing. So Christians can say that we can give anything. Christians can give anything because God owns everything. We can give anything because God is our everything. We can give anything because God owns everything. The last thing we need, number four, is we need a true source. We need a true source of our generosity. If we do not feel generous as Christians, it is simply a failure to believe the gospel. Uh, I'll be honest with you. I, there's a lot of time where I don't feel generous. And, and here's my first inclination, is to go like this. Oh, come on, be generous. Do it. Come on, you stupid Christian. We're going to be generous. Try it harder, right? How's that work? It doesn't work. It doesn't work. I don't really make that sound. I, I don't know. If we, were, if we had two services here, I'd probably take that out. On Anyways. Um, but we try. We try to produce Generosity, and we can't, right? We can't. Here's the reality. If you're not feeling generous and you're a Christian, it's because you have not either not, you're either not believing the gospel or you are not thinking about the gospel because the gospel produces generosity because God has been so generous to us. We talked about a few weeks ago, we talked about adoption, right? That God has chosen us who were not of the family of God and he spent his Riches to redeem us and to adopt us into his family. Ephesians 1, read it. God is so generous. He's been so generous to us. While we were still sinners, he chose us. When we are believing the gospel, we are full of generosity. And when we are not, we're simply not. If a bowl that is under a gushing spring is not spilling over, it's because it's not underneath the spring, right? You put it under the spring, it's going to fill over. When we are reminded of the generosity of God, we can't help but spill over over. That's why Jesus said, he who has been forgiven little loves little. 
But people are the most generous usually when they first get saved because the gospel is so apparent in their mind that God has given them everything. That's why the early church, the first thing that we saw them do was to have all things in common, to sell everything they had and to care for one another because they were so overwhelmed by the grace of Christ and his generosity towards them that they just couldn't help but pass that generosity on. Now, maybe you're sitting here and saying, uh, yeah, that's, that's great, Sam, and I believe the gospel, and I know that God's given everything for me, but I still don't feel like I have anything to give. Maybe my bucket has a hole in it. You ever feel like your bucket has a hole in it? Like I'm standing under the fountain, right? I'm, I'm believing the gospel. I'm reading the word. I'm, I'm aware of how good God's been to me, but I just still don't feel like I have anything to offer. Here's the good news. Your job actually isn't to be a bucket. Your job is to be a tube. You know what I mean by that? If you've got a hole in your bucket, then you're going to make a great vessel for Christ's riches to pass through you to someone else. Say, Sam, where does it say in the Bible that I'm a tube? Actually, it does. Jesus uses a different word. It's called a branch. He said, you are the branches. I am the vine. He said, I'm the source of generosity. Remember I said in the beginning that the reason we aren't generous is because our root system can't penetrate past a fallen and broken world. If you are rooted and connected to the generous one, the eternal beneficent God who is generous, if you are connected to him, then his generosity passes through you. So you see, I, I feel like I have nothing to give. Perfect. Give Jesus. That's what people need. And if you're abiding in him, then his riches pass through you. You're just a portal. You're the agency of his generosity. You don't need to feel full to give Christ. It's nice when you do, isn't it? Isn't it great when you just feel like, oh, I just feel so full of the riches of Christ. I'm going to give. But sometimes you don't. Some of you right now feel empty. You feel like your bucket has a hole in it. You just feel like, I don't understand. I just don't feel like I'm overflowing. Good. Because in your weakness... Christ's strength is made perfect. And in your weakness and your emptiness, there is room for the riches of heaven to pass through you to the poverty of earth. It's the times where I feel like I have nothing to give, where all I can give is Jesus. And that's exactly what people need. We have to remember that a human-sourced generosity is really at its core, it's only a replica of true generosity. And the problem with the generosity that we see traditionally or the generosity we see culturally is it's not sourced in God's generosity. It's human conjured. It's synthetic. It's a replica. It's, it's a, we we want to be a generous people, so let's put presents under the tree and let's give some money and let's throw a red bucket in front of a store and let's throw some change in there and let's pretend, okay? But the reality is we're only truly generous if we're connected to the source of generosity. How does that happen? It happens by the Spirit of God living within you, producing fruit through you. So Christians, listen, Christians can give anything because Christians know that God has given them everything. Okay, and let me review. Christians can give anything. We can give anything because we know that God is our everything. We can give anything because we know that God owns everything. And we can give anything because we know that God gave us everything. We are donors. We are uh, adopted um, I can't think of the right word. We, we are receivers of God's eternal riches. And therefore, we have so much to give. Now, the secret to true generosity is to first experience true generosity. Okay? That's my whole sermon in a nutshell. The secret to true generosity is to experience the true generosity of God towards you. 
and then to become a conduit of that generosity onto the world. Okay, now that's all the heady stuff. Now let's get down to the ground level a little bit. I told you I was going to teach you a whole book of the Bible in 10 minutes. Let's see if I can do it, okay? Philemon, I want to give you, because all of that is very much think work, right? It's okay, this is true, this is true, this is, okay, great. But what does that look like? What does it look like to live gospel-rooted, gospel-sourced generosity? Let's, let's get practical. The New Testament has a sweet little book called Philemon nestled in the, uh, in, towards the end of it, and most people don't even know it's there. It's this most beautiful little note, and what it is is it's a picture of exactly what we just talked about. Let me give you the backstory of the book of Philemon. Philemon is a personal note from Paul the Apostle to a friend of his who lived in Colossae named Philemon. Okay? Paul knew Philemon probably from his time in Ephesus. If you read the book of Acts, Paul spent um, quite a bit of time in Ephesus. He actually sent up a min- set up a ministry school there, and he did some training of leaders. And it's very likely that Philemon was actually this, um, you know, maybe a student of Paul. They knew each other. Uh, Ephesus was the urban center, so people from Colossae would travel to Ephesus. So he knows this man. Now, Philemon was a well-to-do person. He had, he had uh, some influence. He had some money. And as Greek people did in that time, if you have money, you had bond servants. You had uh, slaves, doulos. Now, it's very different than the American slavery that we saw uh, in our country. But, but nonetheless, uh, people would sell themselves ultimately into your service. You would uh, repay them and take care of them. Um, so Philemon has a, a servant named Onesimus. Can you say Onesimus? Okay, just want to make sure you're awake. Uh, Onesimus was this young man that worked for Philemon, and something went wrong. Something went wrong. Onesimus probably stole some money or did something that was costly uh, to his boss, to his master, Philemon, and out of fear, probably for his life, out of fear maybe for repercussions, he runs away from Philemon's home and goes to Rome. Okay, Rome was sort of the center of the ancient world at this time. Uh, Roman Empire really owned everything. So Onesimus, this young slave, flees to Rome. And somehow, when he flees to Rome, he ends up in the company of none other than the apostle Paul. What a great guy to end up in the arms of, right? And what's so amazing is that Onesimus thinks he's running from his problems. In reality, he's running right into the arms of Christ, isn't that great? Oftentimes we think we're, we're running from something, and in fact, God actually uses that to get us right where we're supposed to be. So I don't know how. And Onesimus may have known Paul. I'm not sure. But Paul's in prison. He's sitting in Rome, uh, and he wrote four letters from prison. You can read them. Uh, Colossians, Philippians, Philemon. I uh, can't remember the other one. Anyways, he, he, he's sitting in prison, and Onesimus becomes a friend to Paul, and Paul becomes a father in the faith. He leads Onesimus to repentance, and he leads him to the gospel, where Onesimus starts to notice transformation. He starts to repent of the, the thing that he's done and starts to, to realize the love and the grace of Christ uh, under the care of the Apostle Paul. It's really a beautiful thing. And Onesimus becomes his, his servant. He's bringing him meals. He's taking care of him. Now, as Paul is mentoring or discipling this young man, Onesimus, the, the awkward question comes up, the awkward conversation comes up, and that is, hey, you know, I, I'm so thankful that God has forgiven you, but you still have something you need to go deal with, Right? And that's the reality. We, we repent of sin. God forgives us. But, but there's still a sin. Uh, we still need to deal with the consequences of our sin sometimes. Hey, you need to go square up with your boss. So Paul, graciously, like a good mentor would, like a good disciple would, he sends Onesimus back to Philemon to square up. How terrifying, right? The thing that he ran away from, now he has to go deal with it. 
the thing in his past that he's been trying, that he was trying to run from. Uh, Paul says, yeah, the gospel's big enough to, to deal with this. You need to go deal with this. But he doesn't send Onesimus empty-handed. What does he send him with? He sends him with this little note that's in your lap right now. It's called Philemon. He sends a note, a personal note, from the Apostle Paul with Onesimus to his friend Philemon. And you can just imagine Onesimus, this head down, walking through the door, feeling the guilt and the shame of knowing what he has done, knowing it's wrong, having been forgiven and cleansed by the blood of Christ, filled with the Spirit under the discipleship of Paul. He walks up to Philemon and he says, I'm here to settle my debts. I'm here to deal with whatever it is. But before you deal with me, will you please read this personal note from from the Apostle Paul? And now we're going to read it together. Are you excited? Okay. Philemon, chapter 1. Just kidding, there's only one chapter. (laughs) Uh, Philemon, verse 1. Okay. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. So we know that here that, that Philemon has a house church. He's leading a house church. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in, uh, in us for the sake of Christ. For I have delivered much, or I've derived much joy and comfort from you, from your love, my brother, because the hearts of all the saints have been refreshed through you. And that's all just greeting. Now let's get down to business. Verse eight. Accordingly, Though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Listen to this. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your own owing me of your own self. (laughs) Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. A little passive-aggressive, isn't he? Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers, I will be generous, generously given to you. Let's just end it right there. Now, what are we seeing here in this personal note? I just want you to see two things, and then we're going to be done. Two things. The first thing I want you to see is Paul's generosity towards this young man, Onesimus. How is he generous? He's generous because he's cashing in all of his relational equity and all of his right standing 
that he has with Philemon. He's cashing all that in for this young man, Onesimus. He's putting his neck on the line. He's putting himself out there generously in order to advocate for this young man who has been caught in sin and has fled his sin and has run from his sin right into the arms of the Apostle Paul. Paul is spending himself for Onesimus. He's being generous. Also, Paul is saying, I will monetarily, I will fiscally pay whatever, has, uh, whatever he's taken. Whatever it is, whatever it's cost you, whatever, whatever amount of money you lost from this bondservant and his sin, put it on my account. What is that that Paul's doing? What is that that he's doing? What is the generosity that he's doing? The theological term is double imputation. Double imputation means this. It means that Paul is taking the garbage of Onesimus onto himself and giving Onesimus his own righteous standing, his own purity, his own works. Where in the world did Paul get that idea? What do you think? Where did he get that idea? Where did he get the idea that he could take someone else's garbage and give them generously his right standing? Where did he get that idea? It's exactly what Jesus did for Paul. Why is Paul so generous? Because Paul was a recipient of the generosity of Christ. Paul sees Onesimus and he doesn't see, he doesn't just see some young, you know, forsaken man. He sees himself. He remembers that he was Onesimus. In fact, he was worse, remember? He was killing Christians. And Jesus stopped him in his tracks and said, Paul, Saul, stop killing me, you're going to follow me now, and only you know how much it's going to cost you. Jesus graciously throws arms around Paul, redeems him, gives Paul his perfect righteousness, takes his garbage generously, spends the riches of heaven on Paul, and now Paul's doing the same for Onesimus. Isn't that beautiful? He's gospeling. Because he's saturated in the gospel, because he's soaked in the gospel, because he's a recipient of the gospel, because Jesus is Paul's everything, because Jesus is the treasure in the field, because Jesus is the superior worth of heaven, because Jesus has given everything to Paul, Paul can open his hand and give it all to Onesimus. Isn't that beautiful? Paul's not having to conjure generosity. He's not having to try to figure out how to be a generous person. He's just believing the gospel. And the natural outworking of that is generosity. He's just so ready to give because he's believing the gospel. It's a beautiful thing. Paul has tapped into the riches of heaven. But I, I don't want you just to see the generosity of Paul. I want you to see, or towards Onesimus, I want you to see the generosity of Paul towards Philemon. Because Paul is a father in the faith, not just to this young man, Onesimus. He's also a father in the faith to this man, Philemon, who's a little more mature in the faith, right? He is trying to teach Philemon something here, too. What is he trying to teach him? Look at verse 6. I pray that the sharing, note the word, of your faith may become effective. That's the word koinonia. He uses it again in verse 17. So if you consider me your koinonia partner, Receive him as you would receive me. Here's what Paul's doing. He is calling Philemon into a koinonia, which is the word fellowship, community, commonality, partnership. He's calling Philemon into this gospel partnership that is generosity. He's saying, this thing I'm doing for Onesimus, Philemon, you got to join me. I've forgiven him. I'm being generous towards him. Join me in 
this generosity. There is a fellowship of gospel-centered generosity, gospel-sourced generosity. And when we do it together, it binds us and unites us to the work of Christ in a supernatural way. Isn't that amazing? Paul's saying, Philemon, don't miss out on this opportunity to partner with me in generosity, the generosity of heaven. And what Paul is doing here for Philemon is he's reminding him that Philemon, once you were Onesimus, remember? Remember Philemon when you showed up at my school in Ephesus and you were lost and Jesus paid your sin debt and forgave you? Can you do the same thing for him? Do you see how that cyclical gospel generosity works? We believe the gospel so we can gospel others. We receive the generosity of heaven so we can give generosity. We find the superior treasure of heaven so we open our hands. That is God's mechanism for Christian generosity so saturated in the riches of Christ. It's a beautiful thing. And don't miss the radical nature of what Paul is asking Philemon to do. Did you you catch it? Look at verse 16. Remember, this is a bondservant. He says, no longer is he a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, receive him as a beloved brother. (laughs) Are you kidding me? Paul, you're asking me to receive my slave as my brother? Welcome to kingdom economics. You know why slavery has ended in many places in the world? Because of the gospel. Because of passages like Philemon. Because Paul is literally telling this man, hey, your slave is now your brother. Because there are no slave and master in the kingdom of God. We are all slaves of Christ, and we are brothers and sisters to one another. He's asking him to invite Philemon in as one of his household, who, meaning he, he would receive some inheritance even of Philemon's riches. What an incredible thing to ask. And 11, 21, Paul says, I am confident of your obedience. I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. How can Paul say that? He can say that because he knows the power of the gospel. He can say that because Paul knows, he's the one that said it in Romans, he said, it's the gospel that transforms. When someone has been turned upside down, flipped upside down by the generosity of God towards them, they are abundantly generous. So what do we do? What's the key? I'm not sending you out here with a yoke of, man, Sam told me that my generosity is terrible because I'm just handing a dollar out the window so I don't have to feel bad. Or, man, Sam told me that it's bad that I give stuff to people because I want them to like me. Uh, No, I I want you to walk out of here remembering that if you want to be more generous, just believe the gospel. Fill yourself with it. Remind yourself of God's generosity for you. And I want to sit where Paul is sitting on behalf of the scripture, and say, hey, come into that. Come into the koinonia of generosity. Come into the koinonia of of family generosity. Now, I just have to say this. You guys, Philippi Church, are some of the most generous people that I've ever had the privilege of being a part of. So thank you for that. Continue that. It is one of our greatest witnesses as Christians. That we're not tight-fisted. That we don't hold on to this world because our treasure is beyond it. Continue in that good work. To give true generosity, you must first receive it. Christmas is a reminder, should be a reminder, not of our own ability as humans to produce generosity, but of the fact, listen, but of the fact that heaven has exampled for us what true generosity is. And we can now tap into that as we believe the gospel and are filled with the riches of heaven and connected like a tube to the source of God's eternal generosity. If you're feeling empty, perfect. Give Jesus. The gospel is the riches of heaven. 
and we can all give it out. Amen. Kaylee's mentioned it earlier. There's ornaments at the back of the room. They were hand-painted by some artists in our church, which is super cool. But on them, too, there's a little piece of paper, and it's just got an idea of how to be generous this month. I would encourage you to take that ornament, pray over it, and then look for an opportunity to carry that out. But don't make the energy of that, don't make the source of that your own desire or your own power. Pray that God would give you that gospel generosity to do that in a way that's glorifying. Do it for him because only he can really satisfy the desire to be generous that you have. Amen? We're gonna spend some time in circles. I'm gonna pray and then I'll, 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 I'll explain this a little bit. Father, thank you so much for the way you've been generous to us, God. Lord, I pray that, that everyone would walk out of here, Lord, not feeling condemnation or, or weight, but feeling the freedom of the reminder of heaven's riches, that Jesus, you really are the greatest gift that we ever have received and ever will receive. Lord, I pray that we would just push through the clutter of, tra of tradition and cultural Christmas and just remember it's all about you. You're the gift that we all look for. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.